This is a glorious text. It's also a text, I hope you caught this as it was read just then, a text with an urgent message. So we're going to have a look at lots of things that these verses hold out before us this morning. But I don't want you to miss, I don't want you to miss the urgency in Paul's tone here. Do you see it there in 6, 1 and 2? Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I don't know what you've come in this morning with, but I can assure you this, that no matter who you are, no matter how you've come in this morning, whether you already know Christ and trust him, or whether you have come and joined us this morning for the first time, and you don't know what you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an urgency of this message for you, believer and unbeliever alike. Because Paul is writing this, isn't he? He's not writing this to those who have not trusted Christ yet. This is a letter written to a church full of people he loved, full of people who had embraced Christ by faith. So don't think for just a moment that this is merely an evangelistic passage this morning. And please, please don't close your ears off, believer, brother, sister. Open your ears wide because there's an urgency to this message for you as well as to those of you who might be here this morning and don't know yet what you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an urgent message here. We're surrounded, aren't we, by urgent appeals almost everywhere we look. Perhaps you rode the tube to church this morning. And I bet if you did, at some point you looked up and you saw something advertising an urgent appeal. We're surrounded by worthy appeal after worthy appeal, aren't we? Maybe it's an appeal for funds to go for clothes and basic needs for the children of refugees of war-torn countries. We see those, don't we? And our hearts, our hearts go out to those children. There's an urgency to that need. There's a need that needs filled now in the wintertime when it's cold. It can't wait. There's an urgency there. Or maybe it's the appeals for those who are disabled or those who've been abused to receive the resources that they need. We see those on the tube as well, don't we? Those as we walk down the steps into the station. There's an urgency there because the need is great and the time is short. That is the sense of urgency that frames this passage this morning. It's an urgent appeal, a request an attempt to persuade you, you this morning, to respond to what we're hearing. Do you see it? It's framed, isn't it? Not just 6, 1 and 2 where this text ends, but look back up to the beginning of what Peter read to us in chapter 5, verse 11. What does Paul say? He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul is out to persuade, to appeal, to urge, to exhort us this morning. And we need to listen so that we can respond. And the response can't just be intellectual. It can't just be a response of understanding more clearly something about Christ, although it must be that, but it can't just rest there. It's a response that also needs to include all of us, our affections. Paul's calling us to a greater love for the Lord Jesus this morning. And he's also calling us to follow his example 
as an ambassador of reconciliation. He's an ambassador who brings an urgent appeal. This text teaches us, if it teaches us nothing else, that ambassadors for Christ carry an urgent appeal. This is true first and foremost of Paul, who was an apostle. We're not apostles, but it is relevant for all of us who trust in Christ, who have been called, as well as Paul, to hold out the good news as ambassadors for our Lord this morning. And as Paul held out that message, he was holding it out in a situation where the need was urgent. The Corinthian church was fractured. Relationships were broken. There had been breakdown and schism in this church. And evidently, there was one person in particular who really didn't like Paul and who had made Paul's life difficult and who had whispered round and talked to people and stirred up opposition to Paul. And Paul had come on strong and said, That's not acceptable because, do you know what? I'm not preaching my own message. I'm not out to glorify myself. I'm not boasting in my own power. I'll readily admit my weakness, says Paul. But you have to listen to me because the words that I'm proclaiming to you are God's very words. And here, Paul makes sure that those words have a sharp edge to them. It's the sharp edge of reconciliation. Because if reconciliation doesn't happen, Paul says, if you're not reconciled to God, then you can't be reconciled to one another in the church. And if you can't be reconciled to one another, what kind of church are you going to be as others come and join you? What kind of church will you be as you look, Paul says, to that Jerusalem church and the poor saints that he goes on in chapters 8 and 9 and says, you need to be sending money through me to give to bless those saints elsewhere in the world. None of that is going to happen, Paul says, unless you grasp what it means to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Paul's an ambassador of reconciliation, and he holds out an urgent appeal to be reconciled to God. So that image of an ambassador is central to our passage this morning. If you are a boy or a girl or a young person who's got one of the sheets, you'll see on those sheets things to do with ambassadors. I wonder, do you know what an ambassador is? When you think of an ambassador, whom do you think of? Well, let me give you a little quiz, and this this is for the adults as well. You can tell that I come from across the pond in the U.S. Do you know who the U.K. ambassador to the United States is just at the moment? I, I had no idea, I have to confess. I had to look this up. It's His Excellency Sir Kim Darroch. Okay, well, what about the other way around? Who is the U.S. ambassador sent to the U.K.? Well, maybe we don't know his name, but we might know very soon where he'll be housed. You might have seen in the news recently this new embassy on the south side of the river. And there are varying opinions about that from certain people, aren't there? Whether that's a good investment and a good place or not, but it's a a gleaming new building. And that's an embassy because that's where the ambassador and his staff are going to be located. The ambassador, by the way, is Robert Wood Johnson, and he's got a really funny title. Children might like this as well. He's called not just an ambassador, not just a diplomat, but an extraordinary and plenipotentiary. What does that mean? It simply means this. He's an ambassador. He's set to represent his country in another place. So he comes from the United States, he lives here, he moves here, and he works here, and he represents the interests of his country, and he speaks. And when he speaks, he's meant to be speaking on behalf 
of the government that he represents. That's what an ambassador does. An ambassador does not speak for himself or herself. An ambassador speaks for someone else that rules over them. An ambassador is an authorized representative. Uh, Sorry for the American illustrations this morning, but these are the ones I know and come to mind. And you might know of Benjamin Franklin, one of those famous ambassadors, one of the first ambassadors in the history of the United States. And even before, uh, before certain things happened and people went different ways in 1776, Franklin was living here in London. And he was here as a representative of his state, Pennsylvania, in order to try to persuade Parliament and the king to ramp down the taxation. He had an urgent, urgent mission. And he was speaking on behalf of his government to try to make something happen. His embassy failed in the end, didn't it? And what was the result? The result was years of war and of enmity. Franklin failed in his embassy. Paul comes to us and says, he's an ambassador of reconciliation on behalf of Christ, and he desperately wants his mission to succeed. He says, you need to understand that you are an enemy. You are an enemy of God until you turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're an enemy, and you need to be reconciled to God. That's Paul's message as an authorized representative of Jesus Christ, bearing this urgent message for his Lord. So let's look through a few of the things that are held out to us in this in this text that help us to understand this message better and apply it to ourselves. We'll do that in three ways this morning. First of all, we'll look at the ambassador's accountability. To whom is Paul accountable? How does that work? And then we'll look at what I'm calling the ambassador's affections, his emotions, What is it that drives Paul as an ambassador of Christ? And how might we take our cue from Paul as we seek to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus? And then finally, the ambassador's appeal. What is that message? And that's where we want to spend the final time that we have this morning together. So first of all, the ambassador's accountability. Paul says he is accountable. In verse 11, he's drawing a conclusion from what he's just said in the verses prior. In verse 10, he said he knows, he knows that he and all of us who believe will face a day of judgment. When we stand before the tribunal, the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of our deeds are revealed. And for Paul, as an ambassador, that's a reminder to him that he needs to live now in a way that shows that he is cognizant of that fact, that he he's mindful of the fact that he will have to give an account to his Lord. He is an ambassador sent as one under authority. And he will have to give an ambassador's report. When he's called back to the homeland, to that heavenly land, he has to stand there and give a report of the work that he has done, of the message that he proclaimed, and of the effectiveness of that message and of that ministry. An ambassador's report. And someday, someday, so will you and I, if we trust in Christ, stand before that throne, not to be judged for our sin, praise God, because as we'll see, Christ has taken that from us. But instead, to give a report. What have we done as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus? How have we lived as those who want to proclaim this message? Have we been faithful? Have we been effective 
in proclaiming that message to those around us. We too need to have the mindset that Paul has in verse 11, that he knows the fear of the Lord. He trembles, not because he thinks he's going to be judged and condemned. He trembles because he knows he's accountable to the Lord on high. He has a right and proper fear. He knows he's accountable. And because of that, what does he do? He says, we persuade others. He seeks to be persuasive. He's out there. He's proclaiming the message. And he's trying to do so in a way that gets the attention of those around him and points their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says what he's known, uh, what, what we are known, uh, what we are rather is known to God and he hopes it's known to the Corinthians as well. But he goes on verse 12. He's not commending himself. He's not interested really in what the Corinthians think about him as a person, as a preacher. Is he the most exciting speaker they've ever seen? Does he give a perfectly clear message that chimes and ticks all the boxes that they want to hear ticked week by week? That's not his concern. His concern is to be faithful to the Lord Jesus and to proclaim that message that he's been sent with. And in fact, it goes on. And in verses 12 and 13, he makes it very clear that he could care less, in a way, what they think about him. Do you see what he says in verse 13? For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. You know what? If you think we're crazy, that's that's a little bit of an English gloss there. He's saying, if you think I'm out of my mind, if you think I'm mad because I go on and on and on about Jesus and about the fact that he reconciled me to himself, and that he has sent me to proclaim this glorious message. If you think that makes me crazy, well, so be it. That's all right with me. I'm not concerned about that because what I'm concerned about is getting the message across. And the Lord knows my heart. The Lord knows my motives. And the Lord has given me this message. Paul knows that he is an ambassador who is accountable. And there's some obvious implications for us here, aren't there this morning? How do we have fully in view our accountability to the Lord before whom we will stand one day? And here I'm talking to those of you Christians who already know and trust in the Lord Jesus. Do you live each day in light of that final day of accountability as you think about not only doing good work that glorifies God in your job, which is absolutely important, but also about the fact that you will be accountable as an ambassador for Christ. Do you have that in view? Do we live with a right and proper fear of the Lord in such a way that God is very real to us and the people around us are very small in a sense? Not because we're not not concerned with them and love them, but because we are less concerned with what they think about us than we are with what God thinks about us. This is a challenge for us, isn't it? It's a challenge to us as we think about our evangelism, as we think about those opportunities to speak in a conversation at the water cooler, as we ride on the tube, on the bus, as we walk into the office, as we're with our family members. It's a challenge to be reminded that what they think about us is less important than what the Lord thinks about us. And to take courage and to be those who are obedient to our Lord as those accountable to him and to open our mouths and to proclaim the good news to them. That's what Paul is doing. And that's what we need to do. 
But we need to do it in the way that Paul does it, because he's driven to that right through the Corinthian correspondence, right through everything he writes in the New Testament. It's clear that one crucial aspect that drives Paul to keep that accountability in view is his prayerfulness. Paul is a man of prayer. He spends time on his knees before his Lord each day. And that is what it takes. That is what it takes, isn't it, for us to remember these things, to be reminded of God who is holy, who is great, who is powerful, who is mighty to save, and be reminded that it doesn't depend on us and that it doesn't matter in the end if others think we're mad for opening our mouths and telling them that Jesus died on the cross to save sinners and that new life is possible and that, yes, we believe this book and everything it has to say about God and, yes, we think it's worthwhile living in light of what this book has to say even though the world tells us we're crazy for that. We're accountable to God. We spend time in his presence asking him to empower us for that task and we are ambassadors for him. So ambassadors are accountable to their Lord. And the more time they spend before their Lord, in relationship with their Lord, crying out in prayer to their Lord, the more effective they and we are going to be. So we need to go to our knees before we go out with this message to proclaim. The ambassador's affections takes us on in our in our passage. Not only is the ambassador accountable, Paul says, he also gives us a beautiful window from verse 14 into his heart, into his affections. Do you see what he says? What is it that drives him? He spends time in prayer, certainly, but what is it about his relationship with God that absolutely keeps him going? Do you see it in verse, four, in verse 14? For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What is it? What is it that opens Paul up, even to being hurt by the the very church that he founds in Corinth? What is it that opens us up? with courage to share the gospel, to open our lives, as verse 15 says, no longer living for ourselves, but living for the God who raised Jesus from the dead. What is it? Verse 14, it's the love of Christ. Paul says that love controls him. Other versions will have different words there. That love compels him, propels him, impels him. Do you get the idea? It's a powerful love that powerfully pushes Paul. It constrains him. He might want to go this way on his own, but it guides him back to the way the Lord is directing him. He might want to draw back because he just feels like he's not up to the task. He's weak. He doesn't know the words to say. But the love of Christ propels him forward. It constrains him. How does that work? It works because... Paul knows that Christ died for his sins. He knows that not just as a proposition, that's true, but he knows that in his heart. The love of Christ compels him, constrains him, controls him. And it's to the extent that Paul has love of Christ for him in view that he opens his life to the Corinthians. He said in an earlier chapter to them, we, we walk around carrying the death of Christ 
in us so that it might work life in you. Paul, Paul is absolutely sacrificing, willing to sacrifice himself for their good because he knows the love of Christ. So let me ask you this morning, do you know the love of Christ? It's not meant to be a, a simplistic question. Many of you in here do know the love of Christ. You have been transformed by that love. Some of you, many decades or years ago. Some of you who are younger in the faith or young people among us are just learning to know what that means when we say, Jesus loves me. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, let me just read to you from God's word a few of the wonderful passages that help press into our hearts what it means to be loved by God in Jesus Christ. You know these, you know these, but hear them, hear them, and ask the Lord to press them into your heart this morning. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The love of Christ controls us. The self-giving love of Christ Romans 5.8, but God shows us his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still enemies, still far away, still deserving God's wrath and condemnation. He didn't wait for us to turn around and apologize. He didn't wait for us to pull ourselves up and try to bring ourselves closer to him. He reached out. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent the Lord Jesus to die on a cross for your sin. That's the love of Christ for you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus who dwelt in heaven, in the glory of heaven, humbled himself, humiliated himself by coming to earth and dying the death of a slave on a Roman cross. Why? To show how much he loves you. For the love of Christ controls us. An undeserved love, a surprising love, a delightful love. A motivating love. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for us. Christ, Christian, died for you. That's the love of Christ that Paul's talking about in verse 14. And even before we get to the pinnacle of what comes in verses 18 to 21, even before we get there, we begin to see what it means to know the love of God in Christ crucified and resurrected. It transforms us. It enables us to do what God calls us to do. Paul goes on then in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says in these verses that when he realized 
that Christ had died for him as a sinner, everything changed. It was as if he'd been looking at the world through glasses that were completely filthy and dark. And those were taken off, and he was given a perfect view. New lenses to help him see himself, the world, God, everything. And he realized that all had been made new because of the power of the Lord Jesus. What's he talking about? What did that look like in Paul's life? Well, you might want to keep a finger in chapter 5 of Second Corinthians and just turn back to chapter 9 of Acts. You don't have to do that. I'll tell you about it. But that's where I'm going. Because that's where we learn what it was like for Paul to have this experience. Paul wasn't always called Paul, was he? Paul used to be called what? Saul. And when he was Saul, what did he do? He persecuted the churches. He hated Christians. In fact, we're told in chapter 9, verses 1 and following, he was on his way to Damascus, breathing out threats and murder. Now, that's easy to read in a Sunday school class and gloss over. What is? And Paul was an extremist. Paul was a religious extremist, wanting to persecute, imprison, and kill those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, proclaimed in the Old Testament and now revealed by God, that Jesus was who he said he was. Paul hated that, absolutely hated that. But what happened to him in God's mercy on the Damascus Road? A light appeared from heaven, and the Lord Jesus himself, resurrected and seated in heaven, appeared in glory and knocked Paul down, blinded him, and told him that he was a sinner, that he was wrong, and that in fact, Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And Paul's whole world changed. And by the end of that chapter, Paul is sent out as an ambassador of reconciliation with the message of the cross to take that to the Gentiles, to the people that were included among those unclean that he had formerly had very little time for. Paul's life was transformed in an instant because of the glory and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's not always as dramatic as Paul, is it? At least for us. But, brothers and sisters, and those of you who might not know the Lord Jesus here this morning, this is what God can do. This is what he is in the business of doing. He makes new creations happen. His power in an instant is enough to reveal his glory, to change your mind, to change your heart, to bring you from death to life, to stand you on your feet, To make you a new creation. And if you are in Christ this morning, you are a new creation. And that has so many, so many implications that I wish we had time to unfold in detail this morning. Because if you are a new creation, that means you are no longer, as Paul has already said, living for yourself. You live for Christ. That means that those old habits, those old sinful ways of thinking, of spending your time, of Looking on screen, those old habits of relating to people, that old critical spirit and tongue that that leaps, that old way of putting yourself first, all of that has been changed. Fundamentally, you are a new creation in Christ. 
You don't have to live that way anymore because of the power of the Lord Jesus. That's part of the gospel of reconciliation of which Paul is an ambassador. And that's why this message is not just for unbelievers. This is for you, believer. You have been gripped by the love of Christ, transformed as a new creation, set free from all of those old patterns. The old has passed away, the new has come. And in the power of God's Holy Spirit, you are enabled to grow day by day in the likeness of your Lord Jesus. We have to get to the end here as we come to the end of our time. And this is, in many ways, a high point in all of Paul's letters. Some have called this the pinnacle, the mountaintop of Pauline theology. But it's embedded in this little letter This letter where he's trying so hard to persuade others to be reconciled to God that they might be reconciled to one another and do the work of God in a society that needs to hear this good news. That's that's the context here. Let's read from verse 18 once more onward. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here it comes, this high point. This is beautiful. If you've not memorized this verse, go home and memorize it this afternoon. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You've got to have this in your memory so the Holy Spirit can use this in your heart this week to transform you. Here it is. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This beautiful exchange, this is at the heart of Paul's message. The Lord Jesus Christ, perfect, sinless, without fault, glorious on high, taking on human form, living, suffering, ministering as a man, and taking on our very sin upon his shoulders as he hung there on the cross. The one who knew no sin. Do you hear, do you hear the language of verse 21? For our sake, he made him sin. He made Jesus to be sin. Jesus became sin for us. He who is sinless and spotless as a lamb, white as snow, had our filthy sins upon himself on that cross. The one who deserved no wrath and judgment from his father, willingly taking on what would attract the full wrath and curse of God upon himself. So that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not just, catch this, not just so that you may be forgiven. Yes, that's true. When you turn to the Lord Jesus by faith, no matter what you have done, no matter what your life has looked like, All of that cleansed, swept away, forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 tells us, those sins are removed and forgiven. Yes and amen to that. But that's not what Paul says. What does he say? He says we might become 
the righteousness of God, the very righteous, that we might be clothed with the righteousness of the one who hung in our place on that cross, that we might wear his pure and spotless robes and therefore stand before God with confidence and without shame, without guilt. The great exchange has taken place, Paul says. That's his message. That's the ambassador's appeal. He's accountable to his Lord. His affections keep him going. The love of Christ keeps Paul going. But this is the message. This is what he lives for. This is what Paul would die for. To make this urgent appeal, more urgent than any appeal you will see on the tube. Be reconciled to God. Sinner, you who are at enmity with God, be reconciled to him because of what Christ has done. And that same appeal Paul holds out to the Corinthian believers. Because they need to remember that day after day after day. They don't move on from this message of reconciliation. Because that is what will drive them to be reconciled to one another. And to be reconciled among the the wider church and the work of the gospel across the world, Paul says. So Paul ends on an urgent tone. We've seen it. We'll end with it. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Note how he puts this. Paul knows, not only is he accountable to God, not only is he loved by Christ, not only has he been reconciled, he's no longer an enemy, but he's a friend of God, he knows that he works with the power of God. Working together with him, verse 1 of chapter 6 says, "We we do not go out to do this in our own strength. We do not go out to share this good news in our own strength. And praise be to God for that. Because if we did, we would fall flat on our faces. We can't do it. Paul says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. They've received the grace of God. They've heard this wonderful message. But may it not be in vain. May it have its transforming, ongoing, everyday effect in their lives as that gospel of reconciliation presses deeper and deeper into their hearts and into their minds. And he says it's urgent. It's urgent. And he cites from Isaiah chapter 49, as we heard Gabriel read earlier for us, which is a beautiful text talking about how Yahweh, the Lord God himself, is going to save his people and bring his people to him from the ends of the earth. That has begun now, Paul says, as he cites this. In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. When is that, Paul? When is that day? When is that time? Behold, now, verse 2, is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time when the Lord God himself is bringing the nations to him, when he is reconciling people of every language, every ethnicity, every tongue and tribe and nation to himself. Now is the time. And we're called, like Paul, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We will be so much more effective in that task if we remember the love of Christ for us and that great exchange. Martin Luther and John Calvin, whom we've just been thinking about a lot in this last Reformation year, 2017, celebrating 500 years of the Reformation, Both spoke of this great exchange embodied in chapter 5, verse 21. 
And Calvin said, what, what, is, what, what, what a wondrous exchange this is, that the Lord who was so high became low that we might be raised up, that the one who was innocent was condemned so that we might be proclaimed righteous, that the one who was spotless bore our sins that we might bear his righteousness. This great exchange, this gospel of reconciliation. We're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the love that you have revealed to us in Christ. We thank you for the high calling. And Lord, we are conscious that we cannot apply this to ourselves without your power. Lord, help us to be those who go from here this morning with your word, with these words ringing in our ears, with a desire to know more deeply your love. Open that up to us this week, Lord. Remind us of the love you have for us in Christ. Motivate us. Cleanse our hearts. Raise us up. Give us full assurance of faith so that we might be those who are effective in sharing the good news with others around us. We pray it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.